0: This is Omo. This is Omo. This is Omo.
1: This is Omo. This is Omo. This is Omo. This
0: is
2: Omo. This is Omo. Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Hello,
3: everybody. Welcome back to Omo, the romance and reality of all things violin trade. I'm Jerry Lynn, coming to you from beautiful autumnal Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And you might notice today, Omo sounds a little bit different, and that's because I'm joined by Omo Editor-in-Chief and producer, Jason Peoples. Hello. Hey, Jason. How you doing? Doing okay. Glad to be with you. It's great to have you. So Jason has been an integral part of nearly every episode, making us sound amazing even when we're not. So, Jason, where are you from and what do you do there?
0: Well, I am coming to you from Arlington, Texas, which is just in between Dallas and Fort Worth. And uh, I've got a shop there called Arlington Strings. And we rent instruments and repair them and sell them and all the things that go with them. So it's our little little string home.
3: Do you wear spurs while you're working on violins?
0: Uh, Just on the way to work.
3: Okay. does the gun get in the way?
0: Well, you know, you put that on the saddlebag, and uh, and the horse doesn't mind.
3: Very cool. So, Jason, <laughs> do you know why I wanted you on this episode? No. Well, you see, our uh, our episode on hide glue was one of the most downloaded episodes we've ever had. Our guest for that episode, Michael Doran, hinted that he wanted to come back on Omo to talk about sharpening. And I was like yes please Uh and then i was like i need someone to help me bring the nerd thunder oh i'll bring it because it's sharpening oh i know you'll bring it (laughs) because it's sharpening (laughs) it's about to get nerdy real fast so stay with us as we bask in the minutiae of sharpening after the break
4: hello homo sapiens i have with me jackson maberry maker of the most potent fiddle sauces on the market, J.G. McIntosh Rosinate oil varnishes.
1: Happy to be here with you all. Thank you for having me.
4: I use this regularly. It is on my workbench all the time. I use it with varnish and touch-up work. It's great for a sealing layer between touch-up colors. Now, where can I find this stuff?
1: The only place to, to buy uh, the Dr. Macintosh finishes is at Wood Finishing Enterprises.
4: So it's woodfinishingenterprises.com.
1: That's the one.
4: I've got it open right now. So tell me how to find your stuff.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple different ways to sort of find your way to um, the Dr. Macintosh products. In the product categories, you can go to coating and finishing materials, And then you'll see a subheading that really speaks to people like you and me. It says "Products for Violin Makers." I see it. So you'll see all of the the Dr. McIntosh stuff there: the Tintura, the Ground, and the Color Garnishes.
4: Oh, and there's like resins and turpentine's in here as well. Almost anything you could ever want. If I just want to find your
1: stuff, so the easiest way to do it is that search bar in the top Mm -hmm. of the dot com. If you were just to type in McIntosh that's M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H, into the search bar and hit enter, all of my products will pop up right there.
4: Okay, great. And you've got several different varieties as far as colors. I, I'm using the clear all the time. I would highly recommend getting the varnish thinning agent if you make a purchase here just to keep everything at the right consistency. It's good stuff out there, guys go to woodfinishingenterprises.com you can just type in macintosh up at the top and find what you need for your bench monkey practice all right thanks guys
3: welcome back homo sapiens and welcome back to omo award winning cello maker michael doran michael it's good to have you back sir
2: hey folks oh it's great to be back i uh, i so enjoyed being on the podcast last time and i'm uh, i'm looking forward to our discussion today thanks for having me back yeah I hope I can make the cut, you know. <laughs> I think you'll put a fine point on it. I'm hoping to give you some interesting angles, and uh, hopefully, I don't have to water it down too much, you know. <laughs> so you've been on the the cutting edge of a lot of things
3: recently. What have you been up to since our last time?
2: Well, I've been, uh, you know, uh, getting my nose to the grindstone and stealing myself, and uh, and really, yeah. really uh, doing the, doing the hard hard work with grit and tenacity. You know, you know how it is.
0: <laughs> all these jokes are so abrasive <laughs>
2: <sighs> oh. and, uh, I, I hope that together we can uh, we can all you know work to not lose our tempers on this on this podcast. you know we gotta hone our skills you know
0: you gotta yeah let's just cut through it.
2: but seriously it's uh it's a delight and a pleasure to be back with you fine gentlemen and uh and uh, i'm really excited to uh to dive into the world of of sharpening i think it's going to be fun um i'm I'm ready to geek out with y'all
0: yes yeah
2: i hope it's not too edgy (laughs) strap in folks it's going to be an hour of this
3: But in all seriousness, you you've you've been well. Uh for those of you who don't follow Michael on Instagram, you should. You should join us. what how many
2: followers do you have now? One million? Ah, hardly. Hardly. But uh but one of my videos did kind of go viral, which was pretty fun.
3: So uh he he's got very, really interesting content if you're into the the nerddom, and a lot of us are as far as yeah, you know, things like what type of bandsaw blade you should buy and yes. how do you turn a, uh, a, a an end pin plug on a lathe and all that really cool stuff. Michael gets into it and he's definitely worth a follow. Oh, well, thank you. In case we haven't brought the, the point home, uh, we're here to talk today <laughs> about sharpening. <laughs> and uh, so without further ado,
2: Michael, let's talk about steel. Ah. Uh. I love steel. Steel is so cool. Um, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the bones that holds our society together. Like everything in the world is, uh, is held up with a skeleton of steel. Um, and uh, it's got some really cool properties that make it, make it so neat. Um, now, let's start with, with what is steel. Steel is a mixture of iron and a little bit of carbon. And then when you get fancier, it's got some other elements and things in it, you know, which uh, create the recipe for it. But um, even though there's a lot of iron in the crust of the earth, there's actually 6% of the earth's crust is iron. Most of it is bound up in iron oxide, which is rust, right? Mm -hmm. And so for a really long time, people couldn't, get much usable iron out of the crust um in fact some of the first iron that we have is um is meteoric iron so like like literally like falling rocks from space were the first iron that people used. there's a dagger in uh, Tutankhamun's tomb that is made out of meteoric iron and it's just just so neat because it was purer than the stuff we we could make um space dagger for the king yeah, exactly. More valuable than gold. Um, so f- for a long time, people used copper and copper alloys like bronze because they're uh, melt at lower temperatures; they're more readily available. And then at some point, you know, who knows exactly when uh, somebody figured out that they could take this iron oxide, or maybe they got a particularly rich piece of dirt or rock or whatever, and they could get that oxygen out of the iron, and they ended up with um, wrought iron, because you, you pound it, and you get rid of the slag, it's a ton of work, and eventually you have this black stuff that's wrought iron, which is basically just pure iron with some impurities, right? Um, and that was the like forefront of iron technology for a really long time. Um, we still use that and today. At I mean, some point, you'll see oh, yeah. like or- ornamental blacksmiths. Uh, yep. Absolutely. You know, you know, you
3: go to the you go to the, the, the your local fair and you see the guy hammering out. He's he's mostly using iron to create things like cut nails. Yeah. That sort of stuff, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Wrought iron fences and gates, and sometimes mm-hmm. patio chairs. Like, mm-hmm. run into a lot of that kind of stuff.
2: So it's still around, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And it's really good for certain purposes where you don't need like the the extra strength that. That steel provides, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, when you add 0.2% of carbon to iron, that technically becomes steel. That's mild steel. And that is like the workhorse steel that's in all of the buildings, that's in cars, that's in all the machines, everything like that. That's mild steel. And it gets, um, it gets a lot stronger and it gets a lot harder than just, just iron by itself. Um, when you start adding more than 0.2% of, of carbon, um, when you get up to 0.8%, then it becomes tool steel and tool steel. I mean, this is, this is what we're here, here for really tool steel (laughs) is neat because you can fully harden it. Um, and I'll get into that in a minute, what that means, but you can harden it essentially. Um, if you add too much carbon, then the steel becomes brittle pretty quickly um, about 1.5%, it becomes less useful um, to us as an edge, like it just gets too brittle. And then anything mm-hmm. uh, with more than 2% carbon in it is cast iron, which I thought was pretty neat. That's like what all our machines are made out of is is just iron with extra carbon, and then it becomes stable and pretty brittle, but you know it will hold its shape very well and stay flat and and all that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, should I go into should I go into iron crystals now? I mean, can we talk yeah. crystals, guys? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: We can talk crystals. Okay.
2: Now, this is not the kind of crystal that you know you 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 wave your hands over in Santa Fe or whatever. These are these are so small you can't see them. Um, but the neat thing about iron is that the atoms like to form crystals. That's kind of one of the the neat properties of of iron atoms. And so the simplest iron crystal is, if you think in your head, um, of a cube, right, Mm -hmm. with an iron atom at each corner of the cube, so that's eight atoms, and then one in the middle. That's called ferrite, okay? And it's a very simple, pure iron crystal. Now, if you start adding carbon to the iron, Eventually, in some of those little crystals, that middle iron atom gets displaced by a carbon atom, okay? And that's that's good because it uh, it sort of locks the carbon atoms a little bigger than the iron atom. It kind of locks those atoms in place and it makes it harder. Now, what we do when we add carbon and we heat up the steel and we, you know... Um, Uh, we're trying to get it to a point where those carbon atoms can flow freely through those iron atoms and then we trap them quickly inside that little matrix of iron atoms. And I mean, that's basically steel. That's why we add carbon, heat it up, and then cool it down, quench it really quickly or slowly, depending on the steel, and, (laughs) um, and lock those carbon atoms in there. And then further with the cooling part of it, we can even take those cubes of iron atoms with a carbon in the middle and not just lock them in place, but we can actually deform them and make them like kind of squish them to the side. And then it really locks those iron atoms in together really hard. And sometimes the uh, the corners of the iron atoms will actually be shared with other cubes. And when you get that sort of a matrix together, that is what we consider, you know, a nice steel that's hardened with a good edge and will um, maintain its shape really well. There's sort of like two um, properties, right? We have, we have um, hardness, which is the factor that steel will resist denting, right, with a, something being pushed into it. And then there's tensile strength, which is the steel's strength in resisting stretching. And those two things get way, way, way harder and more beneficial when you've got all of those carbon atoms locked up within those iron atoms. And that's, that's, that's steel right there, basically how it works.
0: I love thinking about that crystalline structure, you know, that big grid that expands mm-hmm. when you heat it to trap everything. It starts to make sense when you think about it losing its magnetism when it gets hot enough. And that's when, you know, <laughs> it's at that point it can absorb things and then it quenching it is how fast you tighten that grid to
2: mm-hmm. capture
0: all those things. And so if you want it less tight, then you give it more time to escape. Like it all kind of makes sense on, on, the whole process when you can visualize that structure. Very cool.
2: Mm-hmm. And what I thought was really cool is I, I, I learned more about this when I was, when I was researching it, you know, we've all sort of heard of different types of steels. You know, there's, there's O one, there's a two, there's W two, W one, D seven, you know, there's all these word salad of steels. Um, but like W one, W two just means water cooled steel right? And mm-hmm. O1, o- is oil-cooled steel, A1, A2, that's air-cooled yep. steel. Those are each like slower ways to cool the steel. Um, and one of the advantages to some of the the air-cooled steels or the oil-cooled steels is that uh, they warp less when because mm-hmm. the quench is slower and so when you when you quench something in water it's really really fast because the water takes all that heat away and locks those carbon atoms in the iron and the steel can warp and so then you have to go and like grind it flat again and do all these things but with some like very precision parts um, you might want a really gentle quench so that Mm -hmm. it doesn't deform at all because you've got this perfect shape die that you needed made to you know make a part or whatever and, um, and that's when the air-cooled steels are are really neat. Um, so anyway, yeah, and also uh, that's where the addition of other elements comes in, like um, O1 has an uh, addition of some manganese, which slows those carbon atoms down so they can't get out of the little iron cages. Um, and then with A2, with the air-cooled steel, sometimes it, it gets broader there, but they add some chromium silicon other other things and then we're getting into carbides uh, which are a different form of iron crystal that's forms with uh, iron and carbon and other elements and and they're super hard um they're like little like i almost think of them as like little like rocks little hard pockets inside the matrix of the steel they're they're not like you can't get a um Uh, a whole piece of carbide in steel to actually make like carbide tipped router bits and and things like that. They actually like powder up the carbide and like bake it at like a little like a little cake uh, to form those little teeny tiny things. As I recall,
3: the only thing that's harder than carbide is diamond. Yeah, it's super hard. So to back it up a little bit, uh, if anybody's interested in seeing early steel production, uh, the YouTuber ClickSpring has an Excellent video on how early files were made, so I strongly recommend people check that out because it's it it, it goes over a lot of this sort of uh, terminology that Michael's talking about in in a video process, and you see him making steel with very primitive means.
0: Yeah, neat. Have you guys ever watched Forged in Fire, the History Mm -hmm. Channel show? Man, it's a, it's a knife making competition, but it's cool because they talk about that stuff and you get to see things happen when somebody water cools or different different parts and the things the dangers of and the strengths of and, you know, they're always looking for somebody who's trying to take the quick way out and water cool it. And then you hear that ping because it cooled too fast and it cracked inside.
3: Uh, uh, one of my best friends is a bladesmith and she hates uh-huh. that show. Really? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> hates it.
0: I'm sure there's a lot of things that are done for TV but uh
2: but it's cool there to are. see
0: people get nerdy about it
3: there are so so back to steel
2: <laughs> well, so you know that's 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 good that you mentioned the ping, right? Because after mm-hmm. we we quench the steel, right? We heat it up, all the carbon atoms get locked in the matrix. We cool it back down, they're crunched over. Um, the steel is too hard and brittle yeah. for our purposes. So then we need to temper the steel, draw it back, right? Which involves heating it up to not quite the same amount of temperature uh, as the, uh, critical temperature where it became non-magnetic and, and all that is just heating it up a little bit and then cooling it back down. And that second heating, the tempering allows some of those carbon atoms to move over a little, a little more. And it gives the steel some malleability and you can actually like, um, you can precisely get the hardness that you want, um, on Mm -hmm. a particular, particular Rockwell scale. Um, so that's an important part of the of the process too. And then, my, I mean, my favorite steel, uh, the one that I love, that I use all the time, is the A2 s- cryo steel, which then yeah. after it's tempered, yeah. it's further cooled to whatever, negative 300 degrees with liquid nitrogen. And apparently that sort of like fully quenches the... Air cooled steel because occasionally there will be parts that uh, that are in the middle that didn't cool quite as much or as evenly. It like fully quenches the steel, improves some hardness, um, and uh, and lets you lets you get the the delightfulness that is that is A two. And I know there's lots of people who love O one who hate A two. Yeah, that's fine. You, whatever steel you love is your steel, and I I support you in that.
0: Well, and doesn't the cryo also releases? Helps release the last tension in it, the last um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. built-up tension. So it's a little more even
3: across. Totally, uh, the that A2 we're talking about—that's the Lee Nielsen steel, isn't
2: it? The, um, the A2 yeah. they use. A2 uh, yeah. Lee Nielsen uses A2. Uh, my, my favorite uh, is from uh, Hawk. Hawk Tools. Okay, uh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a delightful, delightful A2. That's my my go-to go-to blade. But the Lee Nielsen is is just as good, honestly. Really, very cool. Oh uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about with steel is sort of the the frontier of steel, um, which is powdered metallurgy. Um, and um, the real like driver of like powdered metallurgy is trying to get more vanadium into the steel. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's because vanadium carbides, like so little tiny crystals with vanadium in them are really small and really hard, you want small carbides. Big carbides are just kind of kludgy and difficult to sharpen and they can bust out and break. But you want little teeny tiny carbides, and vanadium does that really well. But if you just sort of add vanadium to hot steel, a lot of it falls out of suspension when you go to cool it. Um, and so, what uh, some folks are doing now is they're taking vanadium powder and adding it to the steel through this little process and then they're making little cakes and like baking it again to make a whole steel blade and rolling that out and you can get a lot of vanadium in there like up to 11 percent and wow that's pretty that's pretty good that's the the veritas um pmv 11 is you know um, powdered metallurgy vanadium 11 mm-hmm. percent and uh, and some people some people really really like that. I just think that's neat how steel is constantly innovating. I mean, we've been doing this for what two thousand years, three thousand <laughs> years, and we're still figuring out new stuff. How cool is that? Yeah, well,
0: I know the the older powdered steel stuffs that they started with were still very chippy, but the newer stuffs seem to be amazing and not have that problem.
2: That's what I've heard too. I, I need to try it again because I had some of the early PMV 11 and, um, and I was so excited about it. And it was just chip, chip, chippy, like tiny microchips. I tried to use it for a jointer plane blade and it was just like oh. one pass. And then I would be making this sawtooth edge. <laughs> it was completely impractical, oh. um, but I did find it very durable. So it's kind of like yeah. made this like sort of bulletproof edge that wasn't terribly sharp, but I I hear you. I've heard that they've gotten better and I want to try them again.
3: Yeah. So now before we get into process, you know, the other half of the equation here with sharpening besides the steel is the stone. Absolutely. So what do you got to
2: say about stones? Okay. So we need to hone the edge. We need to abrade it. So we need something harder than steel, right? And what's harder than steel? Well, you know, there's not a lot of things that are that are harder than some steels. You've got silicon dioxide, which is sand, right? Literally sand. Um, you've got silicon carbide, which is uh, carborundum. Um, you've got aluminum oxide, and cubic boron nitride, and diamonds. I mean, that's basically... That's basically what you have. Every every mixture of stone, whether it's synthetic or natural or uh, just you know particles glued to a piece of paper or whatever, is some variation of those abrasives, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and uh, whether they're made by nature, like the novaculite, uh, the, the Arkansas stone, which was laid down in, um, by uh, by Mother Nature with uh, with little tiny abrasive particles in a, a matrix, or the natural Japanese water stones, which is the same thing, but laid down in um, clay. That was sort of the, uh, the genesis of our man-made w- water stones that we use today, because the clay uh, binder Within those little abrasive particles, starts to wash away and wear away and expose new grit. So um, I'm just a I'm just a big fan of modern <laughs> m- water stones because they are yeah. uh, consistent. They are uh, relatively inexpensive compared to natural mm-hmm. stones, and you you can you know use them use them over and over again. You can be sure that they're, you know, the same grid all the way through. Um, I know some people love the natural stones and that's also fine with me, but I think most of us are using uh, water stones to sharpen our stuff. Maybe a few people are using oil stones um, because you need some kind of lubricant, but I I'm guessing that the majority of violin makers are using person made water stones, right? I think so at this point. Yeah.
0: With the water stones, it's great because you can choose depending on who you go with, how quickly it wears away. So how Mm -hmm uh how fast you want to keep it sharp versus having to flatten it
3: and, and some of the more modern ones you don't have the baby as much like i yeah. got away from natural stones and 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 went towards man-made stones because i didn't have time nor the space <laughs> nor did when i do want to deal with the mess of having to pawn stones <laughs> i like being able to just take my shaptons out of their case spritz them with water and go
2: Oh, the splash and go stones are a revolution. I just, um, I just got a set of splash and go stones this last year. And mm. uh, I'm so I'm so happy I was using uh, ponded uh, kingstones since uh, violin making school. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I love the I love the splash and go stones. So these are stones for, for folks that don't know, like, I was always taught that water stones you have to soak them right. and you keep them soaked their entire yep. life because if they dry out they'll warp they'll crack they'll mm-hmm. do all sorts of things but now the um the new thing is splash and go stones where you just pull the stone out you spritz the top with water yep. you go do your sharpening and then you wipe the stone off and let it dry and uh gosh it's just a lot less mess a lot less fussing I I'm yes. I'm a big fan
0: all this time yeah
2: yeah I've
3: been using mine for about eight years now, Uh, Mm -hmm. man. And it's like, I don't have to think about it. It's fantastic. Exactly. exactly. By the way, we're not sponsored by Shapton. But if you (laughs) want to sponsor us.
0: (laughs) Uh, We could be. Yeah. It's
3: mail at (laughs) omopod.com.
0: Yeah. The the less time it takes me to set up my sharpening and go through that process, the more likely I'm going to do it in the middle of a project to just go, hey, let me just run this a couple of times instead of like, I'm going to set aside however much block to get everything ready and i'm like well i can kind of maybe finish this and then it you know it goes wrong
2: uh sharpen early sharpen often totally yeah it's it's way easier to sharpen a a moderately dull edge than mm-hmm. a supremely dull edge and uh and time we can save sharpening is like is money it's efficiency you know it's got to be quick it's got to be easy yep my hero <laughs>
3: Oh, what are you talking about? Anybody can do great work with sharp tools.
2: It takes a real master to do great work <laughs> with dull ones. No, totally. No, totally. That's 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 true. I mean, you know, who wants to play this game on easy mode? Plus, you get a break
0: while you're sitting at the hospital. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <sighs> my uh, my my left thumb and forefinger feel feel very called out by that comment, so <laughs> <Just>, oh. <laughs> Also, always wear closed-toed shoes in the workshop, kids. Oh, yes, man. (laughs) And don't try to catch that knife or scraper that's falling on the floor. No, let it go. Right. Let Let it go. go. Just let it go.
3: (laughs) So that brings us to, I guess, the process of how to sharpen. And wow, Jason, do you remember how you learned to sharpen?
0: Yeah. Like I, I had sharpened a couple things on stones, like knives, pocket knives and different things and, mm-hmm. and knew a sharp tool versus a dull tool, but didn't have a good method. Um, and this was at a time before Oberlin, before I knew any of you cool violin people and I was just looking for information. So I did a bunch of research and b- basically read like four books on sharpening um, hmm. just to try and get a full view of what was happening with the metal. I mean, lots most of the stuff we just covered, like, Uh, what the different options were for um, materials to sharpen, what was important, the different tool steels, what was I was going to use with what, uh, just so I could have an intelligent conversation when I did ask a question. Um, I ended up loving the Ron Hawk book. It's written Mm -hmm. really well, very conversational, covers a lot of the stuff, good pictures, um, and got me into uh, using stones. Um, I had tried it with sandpaper very cool, very good way to stop, uh, start, um, keep everything flat, but man, I was going through sandpaper too fast. And I, I always wanted to use that sandpaper longer, uh, to not waste money, but then of course it's not doing anything. Um, Mm. so, but once I found good stones, man, it changed everything. And then it was just a matter of time and, uh, you know, pulling in a Tormac helped get things. So I wasn't spending all my time on the stones. Mm -hmm. Um, and so seeing what other people were doing and their process of what kind of edge they were getting what was important what was useful um but really understanding you know what was at stake first really helped me uh, absorb and make good questions
3: so i first learned to sharpen i think it was like 15 16 and uh my boss shows me this chisel and he says oh you got to come over to this sharpening stone and we put it in this I don't know, this, this honing guide thing. And we took forever going through, mm-hmm. it was a real character building thing. it <laughs> stand there for hours, what felt like hours. And, you know, I did that for a while. And then at some point, um, you know, I discovered grinding with either a high-speed grinder or then a Tormek. And, you know, for me, once I found hollow grind, you know, how to make a hollow grind, I was like, I'm sold. I'm with this. And then at some point, you know, I used a whole bunch of different stones and uh, David Burgess said, you know, Jerry, you ever heard of Shapton stones? And <laughs> it's like, no. And he goes, oh, you should try it. And so I did. And I was like, thank you, David. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's what happened when I was talking with you. I was using, yeah. um, I think, Norton stones. And I'm like, they were good, but I had to flatten them every single time. And you're yeah. like, hey, tr- try these Shaptons. And I was like, all right. He's like, it's, they're a little bit of money, but try them. And, uh, oh, my gosh, it's everything.
2: I feel like the uh, the first year of violin making school, they they told us they were teaching us how to make violins. And, in fact, you actually do make violins in that first year. <laughs> but, like, actually what you're learning is how to sharpen things. <laughs> and, like, that first year was all learning how to sharpen things. That's awesome.
3: Like, do you have any early memories of, gosh, why can't I do this? oh uh, yeah was, i mean
2: um, you know i i showed up at school with with very limited woodworking experience and and basically no concept of what an actual like tuned up sharp tool felt like and i just remember it was such a uh such a revelation to find that you could actually make something that was as sharp as a razor you know like how mm-hmm. amazing how magical that you can take this thing and make it that sharp so that you know the hairs like uh they, they don't actually get cut by the blade, but the hairs like decide to jump off just because they're so scared <laughs> of that edge. They see the edge coming in the distance. They're like, Nope, I'm out of here. I'm gone folks. But you know, the latest, um, the latest thing, cause, cause you know, we've all, we're all professionals. We've been sharpening a long time. The, the latest thing that just really like humbled me and, uh, and upped my sharpening game was the, uh, I joke that it's the most expensive $12 microscope ever. I got this <laughs> microscope on Amazon with a little light, an led light, and it goes up to like 60 to 120 times or something like that. And I started to look at my edges under a microscope mm. and holy mm. mackerel, were there a lot of scratches in there. I mean, <laughs> you think, you think, Oh, this is pretty sharp. This is pretty good. And then yeah. you start looking at it under magnification and like, it's just a, just a sawtooth. Um, yeah. And, Getting getting that fine view has really really humbled me and tightened up my sharpening game in the last year. I feel like I've been able to get um, get polish that I never could, even you know after mm. years of experience. So before we get to
3: that point, let's back for people who who maybe they're just at the beginning of this journey or maybe they're struggling. Want, can we go back a little bit and talk about the process? Mm. Like if you were to walk somebody through who had never sharpened something before
2: what would the process be all right so it's all about a sharp edge is two inter intersecting planes of metal that we want to get uh as small as possible at that leading edge. Like theoretically, we would love to get to what's called a zero radius where there was, there was nothing. It was just a point, maybe, you know, a Planck's constant distance, right? Whatever the smallest thing in the universe, (laughs) but practically you can't ever get there, but you can get close. So, um, in reality, there's, there's nothing that's sharp it's just like less dull than, than something else. Right. (laughs) Um, we're all, we're all in, in a state of dulling and every tool that you think is sharp is just on its way to being dull or is dull already. So, uh, you know, fear not because, uh, because it's all, it's all going to be dull eventually. But, um, the way we, we test that is that once those two planes intersect, uh, via whatever abrasive method you're using to to get rid of that metal, um, a little tiny bit of metal is going to get pushed up as you as you abrade it, and that's called a burr. And you can feel that burr on the other side. If you, um, it almost feels like uh, like a little uh, little hook on the on the backside of the edge, and you can feel it with your thumb or uh, some people test it with like you know the back of your fingernail. It'll kind of like um, catch right. And until you have a burr. You're basically just like wasting your time. You you can polish all you want, but if you're not polishing that leading edge, then you're not really sharpening it. So like that was one of the key first things that I learned is that you have to like grind, a braid, whatever, with a very coarse stone or the coarsest one you feel comfortable doing to save yourself time and get that burr. Because once you get the burr, then you can, you can fold it back and forth. You can polish both sides and get that zero radius or as close to it as you want. But until you get there, you're not actually sharpening that leading edge. You're just kind of polishing near the edge.
3: Okay, so we've got this burr then what? Let's say we've got a straight, straight blade, like a plain blade or a chisel. Yeah. What are you going to do next?
2: So it's a process of like, well, first I start on, on a grinder. Usually if I'm, if I'm starting with a new edge, I want to grind the angle that I want on the end of the tool. Usually it's not perfectly square from the factory. I want to get it close as I can. And, uh, so, you know, I'll get all, it's another principle that I've learned with violin making. Try and use the biggest tool you can for as long as you can, because that's going to save you time. So you want to use your grinder. You want to use your coarsest stone. You want to use your coarsest lapping paper, whatever you want to get that burr. Now, once you have the burr, you have metal contact. You have a point. Then it's just a matter of removing the scratches that that abrasive method made because it's a it's a coarse tool it's gonna leave big scratches in the in the edge it's really just a a process of folding that burr back and forth by by honing both sides and polishing that edge so that you can have as few scratches in that edge as possible because each of those little scratches is kind of like a little chip in the edge and so the more polished you make it the cleaner the cut is going to be the better it's going to slice through the wood the fewer tool marks it's going to leave um and also a polished edge just like just from the act of of being polished it kind of slides through the wood uh with a little bit less force which is nice so yeah i mean that's all sharpening is You, you find the burr and then you polish that burr off. And you get successively smaller and smaller burrs by going one side and the other, and then one side and the other. And you know, there's there's a million ways to do that. Um, you can do it with a honing guide, which holds the tool at a con- consistent angle. You can do it freehand. I mean, there's there's many roads to Rome, right? So, um, however however you get there is is up to you. But you need to polish that edge. That's the key. You want to get you want to get that edge um, as as mirror polish as free from chips as you can
0: i find that with a lot of people that i'm talking with that are new to sharpening the thing that they most underestimate is that both planes need to be polished not just the one on top Mm -hmm. Um, and that to really get those scratches out and to get the zero radius you need to be consistent uh, which is why some people use jigs um or you know devices or things but whatever you do whether it's your hands or a device if you're not consistent then you keep uh changing your edge and when you go back away from it then you start to not be getting that burr anymore
3: Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about angles um do you have preferred angles at which you sharpen your tools at are you a 25 degree guy you a 30 degree guy does it does it depend on the material that you're working on uh, do you do anything with micro bevels? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, totally. Well, so, I mean, the angle we're talking about is like the angle of the cutting edge, right? And a a shallower angle, so a, a smaller number, like, you know, 15 degrees, 10 degrees versus 45 degrees, 50 degrees. Um, the steeper angle is going to be a more durable edge, right? So it's going to last longer, but it's harder to get close to that zero radius versus something like, uh, like a razor blade, like a straight edge razor blade is a very, very shallow angle, but that edge is, is very, very, uh, bendable and fragile. And it's going to chip if you, you know, just imagine trying to like hack out a mortise with a razor blade. It's just not Mm going to work. Right, it's gonna it's gonna fracture, it's gonna bend. But then also try to imagine like you know shaving with uh, a ninety degree beveled cabinet scraper. Like that's not gonna work mm-hmm. either, right? Because it just can't get sharp enough. So you need to tailor that angle to the steel that you're using, how durable, how uh, uh, the steel is, right? The properties of the steel, um, and you also need to tailor it to the work that you're doing. Now, for most woodworking applications, most steels. Something around 25 degrees is pretty darn good. And if all else fails, just put a 25 degree angle on it and it'll be fine. Um, I tend to sharpen my block planes with and all my bench planes with a 25 degree angle. Um, I think that is just it's just traditional. It works very, very well for me. Um, I put a 30 degree angle on all my chisels because I tend to like my chisels to be just a little bit more durable than, um, plain blades because they end up getting sort of like pushed around and I'll often like lever with it a bit. So, so yeah, with, um, gouges and chisels, I tend to, I tend to have a little steeper angle, but, um, plain blades 25 is good. And then I'm a, I'm a big fan of the micro bevel. Now what's a micro bevel? So, um, a micro bevel is you have your, your primary uh, initial plane on the face of the, of the chisel or the plane blade uh, opposite the flat back. And some people just sharpen that face and, and that's fine, you can do that. But uh, with some of these honing jigs now, you can turn a little, a little wheel, an eccentric wheel uh, on the bottom and you can raise the angle just one degree Right, just a tiny amount, right, so that it makes little to no difference, really, to the practical angle of the cutting edge. But then you're only polishing that very leading edge on the stone. And I love to finish like that because you can really get a a perfect polish and polish away any scratches that are left um, with that last final final honing on your on your finest stone. Um, I, I find that's uh, that's a great way to do it. And then also my my jig, the um, the lean. The Veritas uh, Mach Two honing yes. jig. It has three micro bevel positions that you can put it on. So it's almost like like cheating. Like the first time, I'll I'll sharpen it with the regular bevel, and then when I go back, I'll turn it one degree and sharpen that, and then I turn it two degrees and I sharpen that. Turn it three degrees, I sharpen that. <laughs> after it's dull, so then I only have to grind like every third sharpening to actually yeah. um, go back to that primary bevel. Um, I really like that. I think it saves me time.
0: I really like that that jig too because I find it to be way easier to be repeatable. Um, mm-hmm. It's easier for me to reline up and get that micro bevel so that I'm I'm not just guessing it because you can't really reference a micro bevel by feel very well. But the right, the exactly. jig really helps.
2: Yeah, yeah, they've got this neat sort of thing that fits over the end of the um, of the jig that measures the length that the blade sticks out and that is a consistent you know that that length out if you did some math would figure out the angle and so you can be very consistent you can even actually like take the blade out um hone the back and then put it back in the jig and it will be at the same angle which is which is kind of neat because yeah. um, sometimes honing the 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 backside of the plane blade while it's in the honing jig can be kind of yeah. kind of uh, difficult because the honing jig is heavy and it's harder to hone just the just the front of the back of the blade, right? So, um, yeah, and it's got a nice wide wheel.
0: It's it's nice.
2: Yeah, it's my favorite too. I've heard the Bridge City one is really nice too. Uh, Ryan Soltis told me that he loves the Bridge City Toolworks one.
0: Yeah, so if anybody wants to sponsor us, you know, hey,
2: Veritas, <laughs> Bridge City, we're listening. <laughs> Call us on the phone. <laughs> So what are your
3: thoughts on hollow grind versus flat grind? And for those of you uh, don't, who don't know, uh, flat grind is, as it sounds, you have the, 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 the angle of the blade is, is 100% flat or as near close to it as can be. And a hollow grind has the, uh, where the wheel comes in and, mm-hmm. and cuts it away to form the angle. You've got a hollow there. Uh, what are your thoughts on one versus the other?
2: Oh, I love, I love a hollow grind. Absolutely. I mean, I think the hollow grind is the most efficient way to to do it, you know, because you've got, first off, you've got the advantage of a wheel that is constantly, constantly turning. So you've got lots Mm -hmm. and lots of grit that you can use. And then when you go to sharpen it, you've only got to sharpen the front edge and the back edge. And you've got all that steel in the middle that doesn't matter. You just don't even have to, don't even have to mess with it.
0: What, what about uh, woods like ebony and Pernambuco? Do you change your angle or uh, thoughts on ho- uh, hollow grind for that stuff for strength?
2: I will, I have on occasion experimented with um, making a steeper angle on my block planes, like 30, 35 for ebony to try and mm-hmm. just see if I could get that edge to be more durable. But In my tests, I found that I didn't like it as much. I didn't like the feel of it Mm. as much. So I just went back to having um, a 25-degree angle on my block planes. These are standard angle block planes, not low angle too. Okay,
0: okay, Um, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And I went back to that and I just bought a second blade. So now when I sharpen my block plane blades, I sharpen two at the same time. And then Mm -hmm. if in the middle of a cello fingerboard or whatever, I need a fresh sharp blade, I just pop a new blade in there. And, And that's been my solution. I also think that the A2 steel that i like uh yeah. does hold up a little better to the abrasive nature of the um of the ebony mm-hmm. and any sort of silica pockets that are that are present in the ebony but, um, yeah. but yeah, that's what, that's what I've come up with. But, um, I think that there's, again, there's many roads to roam. I know, um, Pernambuco is probably a whole different animal, but I don't really work with Pernambuco. Yeah. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I've seen some bow makers have like crazy steep angles on the, on the ends of their planes. And like, maybe that's what yeah. you have to do to get a nice, uh, uh, an edge that lasts for any amount of time with Pernambuco.
3: Yeah. I've been thinking about experimenting with a scraper plane for, for fingerboards, particularly cello fingerboards, because, mm-hmm. you know, as mm-hmm. we, we all know, cello, uh, Ebony is becoming a scarce resource mm-hmm. and the stuff that you buy, uh, m- that shows up might not necessarily be the best stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's been times where I've started playing it. It's so oh, surprise. And yeah. I've thought a, a scraper plane might be the way to go for that.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which Which is essentially what you're, you know, you could almost get there with just a regular block plane. If you just ground a steep enough angle on it, um, you could, Could. you could almost make a, make yourself a scraper plane. I think it's a great idea. It's certainly worth trying.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So we're starting to, to, to run down on, on time here, but I wanted to touch a little bit here on stropping. And uh, for those of you who who don't know what is stropping and what are your views
2: on it, Michael? well okay so in school they they taught us to strop everything and um i think that uh okay what is stropping stropping right it, maybe you've seen in an old movie like the barber that pulls out their belt and they take the razor and they go on the uh on the belt um that's what stropping is stropping is putting a fine abrasive powder or super fine polishing powder on some leather and then running the blade but instead of sharpening um, Uh, forward, the way you do on a stone, right? You sharpen backwards, you draw away from the edge. And the idea is that you're polishing that last little bit of the edge. Now the, the problem with stropping for straight blades like chisels and plain blades is that it does round over the edge a little bit. And then that edge geometry that you've so carefully made, it's not quite as flat at the end as it was. And over time that can become a problem, particularly with things like chisels, where you're, you know, often referencing the backside as a flat surface Mm -hmm. to cut a perfectly flat surface. So, um, I don't strop my plain blades and chisels anymore after switching with the microscope to the new stones and figuring some things out, I found that actually my my edges got duller when I started stropping them again, like they were sharp enough just from the stones that uh, I didn't need to do that anymore. But I still do strop my knives and my gouges and anything where I don't need that perfectly flat edge quite as much because... Um, Frankly, it just makes the edge stay sharp longer. And if you don't mind a little bit rounding, then I think it's uh, I think it's a great way to extend that edge and the time between sharpenings.
0: It gives you a little bit like a, a convex sharpen or, in essence, a micro bevel. You know, it just mm-hmm. gives a little more strength to that. Um, but there's also, you know, Jerry and I have talked about um, using uh, MDF uh, or a board that is flat and putting the the stropping compound on that so you keep a flat you don't get the deflection of the leather Mm
3: -hmm. you can also get uh plates uh i believe dmt Mm -hmm. makes one Lee Valley makes one where you can load up with 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 polishing compound Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. really nice for that sort of thing yep so you know in conclusion uh before we before we wrap it up here is sharpening something that you ever stop getting better at or do you reach a point where you're like i'm the bomb and you're good enough i mean is it always a learning process uh do you ever make the cut do you ever make the cut
2: (laughs) (laughs) i don't think you do i think sharpening is a lifelong lifelong process and uh you know i'm always trying to figure out if i can make my my tools, you know, just a little bit better. I think that it is an iterative process so that like, you know, I'm not making the same sort of gains that I did back in violin making school, right, where I was going from mm-hmm. like, yeah, literally things that I would not consider tools anymore, uh, to like, you know, a nice finely honed something that I can do work with. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's a lifelong process and I think we need to be open to, um, to learning even folks that have been doing this a long time. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like, Absolutely. honestly, honestly, last year when, um, I started using the microscope and stopped stropping my straight blades, I was like, I don't really have that much left to learn. Come on. I know how to sharpen a blade, but like, really <laughs> it's, uh, it's a process. Like we can all learn something. Um, and, yeah. uh, and I think we gotta be open to new things for sure.
3: I agree 100%. I'm trying to get to the point where I can get my edges sharp enough that I can cut back through time and fix all my mistakes.
2: Yes. <laughs> Boy, that sounds that sounds fantastic. Call me when you figure that out, Jerry.
3: I, I will. Michael, sir, it has been an absolute pleasure having you, and we hope to have you back again in the future if you're willing. And uh, Jason, it's been fun having you on the second yes. mic, and this won't be the last time that we've heard from you as well. So... Thank you, everybody. And we'll talk
2: with you later. Thanks very much, guys. Glad to be here. Bye. Bye.
4: Hello, Sapiens. Have you ever wondered to yourself if you could do an ad on this show? We, the Omo team, work with people just like you in the community all the time, helping craft a message that suits you. Whether you're a shop owner, a seller of tonewood, or you make luthier tools, reach out to us at mailomopod at gmail.com. We'll send you our current metrics. That's how many listeners we have and where we have them. And we'll discuss pricing and what key you'd like your jingle to be composed in. Email us at mailomopod at gmail.com and put add in the subject line. Until then, keep your glue pot warm and your blades sharp.
1: This is not this is, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is this is this is and this
3: is the coda. So Michael, do you want to tell us about the the champagne tree? <laughs> I
2: do. I do. Um so uh let's see. As we all know, violin makers, uh it's uh it's a big deal when you sell an instrument, right? Like it's a good day. It's, huge. <laughs> it's a great day. Yeah because this thing that you've made poured your heart into for, for months, um, has found, uh, a home, right. It's found somebody else who, uh, who really, you know, is, is, uh, is hopefully just delighted and in love with this thing that you made. Like that's my, my favorite part of what we do is this aspect where we get to make things that people will cherish. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's really special. Um, so I, I distinctly remember, um, my very first sale after school, violin making school, right? Um, and, and I got that check and I was so, so excited, right? It's more money than I'd ever seen in my life, right? It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so uh, my wife and I got together and we decided that we would start a tradition. And so um, after every sale, when I get that check, the first thing I do with some of that money is I go uh, to the store and I buy a bottle of champagne. Like actual French champagne, I splurge I have an have a nice bottle, and um then uh when we open the bottle, um I like to go and uh, and stand uh, in front of a really big tree and pour a little bit of champagne on the at the base of the tree and uh hmm. I think it's good in this business to remember that like we are so fortunate to get to do what we love and yeah. that there's a whole web of things that make that possible. Like the trees, um, the maple trees, the spruce trees, the ebony trees, the metal that goes into the strings, all the people that wrote classical music. And then uh, taught classical music and learned classical music and go to listen to music right like that we can all be a part of this wonderful web that allows us to do what we love like it 's a it 's a special thing and I like to especially give thanks to the to the trees when um when I make a sale and then um I I saved all the corks, I started saving the corks from the champagne bottles. And, and so pretty soon I had like, you know, a little bowl full of full of corks. And then my wife had the idea to then start writing on each cork, the date, and the name of the person uh, who bought it and what the instrument was and and where they live. And so now, um, in my workshop on the days when, um, when it's hard, because I'm not going to lie, violin making isn't always easy. There's days when I feel Um, I can look over at that bowl of corks, um, which, uh, has all the people out there who love my work and who think it's really special and who are making music and bringing music into the world, um, with my instruments. I can look at that bowl of corks and, um, and feel a little better.
0: Absolutely. Wow. That's so cool. I I love that. It's not just, Oh, remember I was successful. I made money, but all the things that were connected to that, the people, the trees, the, the history, and <laughs> to be able to celebrate that and continually celebrate that, that's really, really cool.
3: Thank oh, you. Michael, you are a beautiful human being who makes beautiful instruments, and I thank you, and I know Jason thanks you, and from all of us from Omo, thank you for being on the
2: show again, and
3: we hope to hear you from again soon.
2: It's a pleasure. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys.
3: Omo is an all-luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Brandon Gottman, Jason Peoples, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out at mail at omopod.com. Or call the OMO phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.